my sister was a, a social worker and um you know her passing so suddenly of cardiac arrest like that at her workplace for me sort of confirms or underscores that first of all like life isn't fair for those of you, of us who are doing well whether it's family wise you know relationship wise professionally i think that's wonderful um, and I'm sure we all deserve credit for getting to where we are. But I think it's also true and important to recognize that, you know, by and large, life is not fair to everyone. Um, there's plenty of people who don't get breaks, um, you know, and economists will tell you about, well, you know, there's a certain segment of population which has it harder than others. My life, my sister's story shows to me that even though she tried her hardest and she, you know, she faced lots of hardships, health issues, professional challenges that I never faced. And so even though life isn't fair, for me, it's, it's a wonderful thing to take away that my sister never gave up. She consistently tried to overcome those challenges. And so I think for me as a successful white male, you know, I think that I really take it to heart, the notion that life isn't always fair. It's very easy for people at the top to say, hey, I made it. And so, come on, guys, try a little harder. You'll get there, too. And I think there's, that's just not true. I think the, the question is, are you trying your hardest? Are you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing the best with what you've been given. But I think the outcome of where you end up is not just a function of how hard you try. And so I think that's that realization uh, I would have never had as fully if my sister were still here. Welcome to This is 40. I'm Reds, and I turned 40 recently, as did my co-host and friend, Alexia. We're actually both entrepreneurs living in Paris, and we were a little overwhelmed with it all, to be honest. We thought, what if we could tap into the wisdom, the humor, the fears, the resilience, and the beauty of all of the 40-year-olds we knew? Wouldn't that be something? And that's how This Is 40 was born. A show where we talk to some of the most fun, brilliant, resilient, creative people in our everyday lives who made a decisive change in their way of living, thinking, and being in the world for the better, mostly, as they hit their 40th. Hey, I'm Alexia. And I'm Renz, and we're your hosts. Join us in listening to our guests as they open up their hearts and share their experience of turning 40 and the gifts it brought them. And we ask you, what is 40 to you? Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of This is 40. As we record this, it's summer outside, it's incredibly beautiful, and many of us are still in lockdown, especially for all our viewers in Asia, in Australia, in the US, um, and then parts of Europe. I understand that you're back into, you're back in lockdown. And here in France, we're just receiving the news that we're gonna go back into lockdown in, in August. So that's our COVID news. Um, but, you know, we're still going to be here. We're still going to be podcasting. We're still going to be finding these amazing people. And the best thing is we can do this 
because we, even if we can't actually meet them, we, thanks to Zoom, can find them anywhere in the world. So if you have someone exciting that you want us to speak to, by all means, please send us an email, get in touch with us on our Insta, on Facebook, or on our website. We'd be super happy to hear and super happy to speak to someone whose journey to 40 or journey at 40 or after 40 is something that we can all learn from and hear about. So today's guest is someone who's who's a really wonderful guest and someone who's really interesting. Um, his name is Mark, and he is that poster boy for dual culture. He's a perfect multilingual citizen of the world. Um, he's he was raised in two different cultures. He fits seamlessly into France and he fits seamlessly into the US. But as he says, and as many kids who are multicultural will say to you, you never feel completely at home in any one place. You're always a little bit less than the people who were born there. And he talks to us about how he worked his way around that and how that is actually such a gift. And I feel like that's something we all need to hear. Um, and he, you know, I feel like Mark has been getting to 40 for the last six years. And he talks about how the moment of vulnerability, actually, when he realizes that life wasn't fair, and especially when it's not fair for someone who's very close to you and you suffer, you watch them suffer because of it. And he talks about his moment of realization and what he did when this tragedy happened, how that changed him and how that helped him find a voice. Um, I think you will love Mark's episode and I think you'll love the transformation around 40 and I can't wait for you to meet him. Happy listening. So Mark, we wanted to, you know, Alexia and I were talking and we're curious about just how you grew up, this whole like dual um, nationality, multicultural kid. And I know there's definitely challenges. I see that for my own kids. You know, where do they actually fit in? Who are they exactly? What culture do they subscribe to? Um, and I was wondering if you could talk to that because you're the perfect example of this. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, and yeah, I think the notion of sort of what culture do you fit in? I think it's, you know, it's something that we all face and I think, but dual nationals have a simpler problem because they're always being told they're not one or the other. There's something in between. And so, you know, in my case, um, I grew up in Paris. Um, my mom is French and my dad's American and I was born in Paris. And so throughout my entire life, um, I've always sort of faced this. Uh, I've been challenged uh, in, you know, in various ways. But the question always comes down to, you're not really French, are you? You're not really American, are you? Um, how do you define yourself? And so, you know, that's, that's always been a difficult question because even though I can vote in both countries, it's true that, you know, I haven't spent as long uh, in one place as somebody who's spent their entire lives there. But um, I think you can also think of this for yourself, for your kids, as this incredible opportunity. Um, and I'm always reminded of this uh, advertisement in The Lonely Planet. I was on a bus and it said, like, do your country a favor, leave it. And so I think dual nationals like myself and others, we have this incredible privilege of looking at our own culture from the outside. 
And I think originally in your case, you know, whether it's India from the US, I think there's no better way to look at a painting than to step, take a few steps back. And so I think that's what a dual culture allows uh, one to do. That's amazing. I love that answer of like being able to step back. And Alexia is going to have the same challenges because her husband's South African, she's French, right? So you guys are going to have the same kind of Absolutely. We're also raising uh, dual culture kids out of Paris. We've, we've lived all over the country, all over the, <laughs> we've lived all over the world. And uh, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing to observe your country and to understand your country once you take a bit of distance. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually a real gift. What, was that ever a struggle actually for you? Was that ever a problem where you wondered whether you were more French or more American? Uh, yeah. Was that ever a question that was asked to you, maybe? I think in my case, what was, um, I guess the challenge expressed itself through the different educational approaches. So what I'm trying to say is I fit in very nicely when I was a kid, I think in the French system. In my case, I started out at the Ecole Bilingue in the 15th arrondissement of Paris, a sort of very comfortable, very nice bilingual school with lots of international kids. But then I changed uh, to go to high school. I went to an all-French public high school, and I actually really thrived there. I, I really liked um, the French experience I had in high school where individualism was less important than fitting in, than shaking everybody's hand in the playground in the morning. Uh, whereas I think in my perception was in the Ecole Bilingue, more in an Anglo-Saxon manner, you had to be somebody. You had to stand for something. And I struggled with that initially. Maybe I was a, a late bloomer. So I really liked the anonymity of the lycée uh, where I went to uh, in Paris. But then, you know, coming back to not fitting in, after a really nice high school experience, I immediately hated the French Ecole Préparatoire which I went to after my baccalaureate. So very briefly for your English listeners or, you know, who might not be as familiar with the French system. In France, typically the best students do not go to university. You know, typically, I say. Um, Many of the French elite go through a very intense two or three year uh, training period after uh, high school called classe préparatoire, which at the end of which you take a, a single exam or single set of exams, and then your stack ranked uh, based on your score, and the top 100 go to the best school, the next 100 go to the next best school. So it's extremely intense, and there's really not a whole lot of room for intellectual exploration. If you're studying the sciences, it's, you know, like, you know, lots and lots of math. Uh, there's very little extra. And so I started that, but it really didn't work for me. And so I I was extremely lucky to be able to switch the American system. And I enrolled at UC Berkeley and did my undergraduate uh, work there. And although I was studying the same classes, doing it was applied mathematics was my major. Um, I thrived at Berkeley. I really enjoyed it. And there was everything to go with it, you know, rediscovering my American roots, um, enjoying the beautiful setting of a U.S. university campus. So... I was lucky that I was able to switch uh, to a system which worked better for me. And I think that's a really important lesson. It's like, you know, you can be really skilled at something, but the culture, the workplace that you're in doesn't recognize that. 
And in my case, it was such a godsend, such a good fortune to be able to kind of do what I loved in a setting where my skills could express themselves much better than they could in the French system. Yeah, you, you make me laugh when you talk about the école préparatoire because um, now that I've been through that myself, I don't think I would have survived that, but you still have to show me one French person who actually enjoyed the process. It's just, it's just a way of crushing the soul and crushing the morale and crushing the mindset to maybe better rebuild you at the end of the process. I'm not sure what the rationale is. And to this day, I'm still trying to understand it. But I do see that um, a lot of my friends who are same age as I am, you know, in their 40s, and who were shocked to the core when they went through that. Uh, now they actually appreciate it. You know, they know that they went through this boot camp or something and they managed to survive it and they're actually hoping that one day their own kids will go through it. So I think there might be yeah. something very French there where, you know, if, if it doesn't kill you, it's good for you. And yeah. <laughs> it shows well, that you belong to some system. It's, that, that's yeah. a very hard concept for me to, 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 to get, I must say. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I think boot camp can work really well for certain people. And, you know, let's talk about something entirely different. Let's talk about meditation. You know, my cousin does this extremely intense form of meditation called Vipassana, where like for 10 days. Oh my God, I know this. Yeah. My teachers do it. It's like an Indian form of meditation. Yeah. Right? And we it's, don't speak to anyone. And it's intense for 10 days. You kind of sit there with yeah. you know, very little communication. And I'm, I'm, I believe in meditation. I try to practice it, but I think Vipassana would likely, you know, could potentially be damaging uh, for some people. So, you know, I, I highly respect, you know, people who can do that. And I think if it works for them, great. Uh, I think it is a respected form of meditation, but I think you have to, you know, tailor, you have to choose your, your own, your own path. And I think, you know, what, what concerns me about École Préparatoire is not that it's it's not good or it's wrong. It's just that it's kind of the only way to uh, for you know for the French elite. And I think it might work well for some people, and they might you know have developed great study habits, great friendships, and like you say, they look back on it saying, "Wow, what an experience!" You know. But I I just want to stress that that doesn't mean it works for everybody. And I think in my case, you know, I think I would have you know, not fared well and gone a very different path. And so I'm very grateful for the U.S. model as an alternative. And I think if there were other um, paths available to students in France who are very smart, but maybe don't fit uh, the profile of this sort of super intense nerd that really doesn't mind <laughs> not doing anything social for three years, you know, then I think France would be better off having, you know, better universities or other ways for really smart kids to thrive outside of the class prépa. I 100% agree with you. Why would you need a social life when you're 18 to 21, Mark? Why would you need a social <laughs> Who life? Who needs a social life? <laughs> but Mark, coming back to like what you were saying, you know, I, I mean, and we'll go back into your interview from there. I honestly like, so I was raised in India and like the Indian system has so much in common with the French system 
specifically in terms of education, is very, very intense. There's a heavy focus on mathematics and the sciences. Like I was the anomaly because I wanted to do art and it's just like, God, your child wants to do art. How sad for you, because we oh. <laughs> like, the country can cater to you if you're a doctor, an engineer or a lawyer. But otherwise, like, what are we going to do with you? Mm-hmm. And I see, you know, it's a sad, sad thing is the number of students that commit suicide because they don't get good grades. It's just crazy when you think about the fact that at 18, you're going to end your life or even 16 because you didn't graduate with like a top grade. And when we're talking top grades, Mm -hmm. like out of a score of 100, these guys will be like 90.1, 90.1 points. You know what I mean? And you're like, and that determines their entire future. That's a horrible system. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, coming back to like, you know, the last few years. So you turned 40 um, and you turned 40 this year. And I wanted to ask, like, how have the last couple of years been? Like, how have you know, what's your reflection on on turning 40 on the last few years? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think in my case, I think, you know, I didn't have a lot of apprehension about that number. I know that a bunch of close friends did. And so we had a lot of conversations uh, about that. Uh, I happened to turn 40, I would say, in the weeks before COVID became visible and, and known in, in the you know, Western Europe. So I was able to have a, an awesome uh, birthday party at a, at a place in Paris that I really love called the Butte Chaumont, uh, the Rosa Bonheur. It's like this little bar in a park with lots of close friends. So it kind of, I think it helped me get uh, partially through the intense lockdown because I feel like I had big, big blowout party. And then, uh, you know, before not seeing anybody for months and months, but um, yeah, I think in my case, I think that, you know, leading up to that, I had a, you know, I've had a very um, fulfilling professional career. I currently work at Google. I've been there for the last five years. I work on their infrastructure uh, team, helping uh, figure out where Google is to build data centers in Europe and also figuring out our energy strategy for how to bring uh, renew, you know, clean fossil fuel free, so carbon uh, carbon free power to our data centers. So I feel you know really blessed. It's a wonderful challenge. I really enjoy my team. I really enjoy the substance of what I do. It gives me a lot of meaning day to day. But um, in my case, I think that my worldview was also shaped by um, the the loss of my sister. Um, I had a sister who was uh, 16 months older than me, and we were very close throughout our lives, um, and we had very different lives. And then she passed away just overnight um, on the 6th of May, 2014, when she was 36 and I was 34. And so I think, you know, for me, turning 40 is kind of thinking back on the last six years for me and thinking about what, what her loss has meant in my life and what I've learned from it. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's been for me, I think turning 40 is, is starting to come to terms with that loss and what it meant and, um, you know, how to, how to make sense of life given that, you know, even though on the surface I've had a wonderful, successful life, lucky life, you know, going to the U S uh, when I did for university, I think that was a really lucky move. It's not all skill and effort. And um, yeah, so I think on the surface, everything looks great. But I think it's it's true that I've also endured uh, a really, yeah, a, a very difficult and painful moment in my life. And so I think 
you know, it's part of the theme for this podcast. I was thinking about, yeah, what my sister's losses meant. And maybe, maybe that's something I can, I can share with your audience. Of course, that, that would be extremely interesting because although you're new to the 40s, it seems like you've come to realize the importance of life or that you've had quite a few moments of enlightenment much earlier than most of us would. So, yeah, if, if, if you don't mind sharing, that, that would be extremely yeah. helpful, actually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that that's one of the incredible ironies you know is that when you lose a loved one i think that one thing they do is they give you a gift in dying and um you know in, in my sister's case i think the gift that she gave is yeah the the you know what she believed in what your relatives believe in you never i think fully grasp until they're actually really gone and then you you're forced to sort of think about them um that was certainly you know that's certainly my case i was very close to my sister but you sort of take her take things for granted and so after she died you know it forced me to think about what she stood for and i'm in the process of just writing some notes a little biography of her life to i think um, remember her better and so what i can share with you is sort of you know what's come to mind in the last six years um see if that resonates with folks I think, you know, my sister was a, a social worker and, um, you know, her passing so suddenly of cardiac arrest like that at her workplace for me sort of confirms or underscores that, first of all, like life isn't fair. And, you know, for those of, you, of us who are doing well, whether it's family wise, you know, relationship wise, professionally, I think that's wonderful. Um, and I'm sure we all deserve credit for getting to where we are. But I think it's also true and important to recognize that, you know, by and large, life is not fair to everyone. Um, there's plenty of people who don't get breaks, um, you know, and economists will tell you about, well, you know, there's a certain segment of population which has it harder than others. I think my point is simply that my life, my sister's story shows to me that even though she tried her hardest and she, you know, she faced lots of hardships, health issues, professional challenges that I never faced. And so, you know, even though life isn't fair, for me, it's, it's a wonderful thing to take away that my sister never gave up. She consistently tried to overcome those challenges. And so I think for me as a successful white male, you know, I think that I really take it to heart the notion that life isn't always fair because I think it's too it's very easy for people at the top to say hey I made it and so come on guys try a little harder you'll get there too and I think there's that's just not true I think the the question is are you trying your hardest are you you know you're 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 doing the best with what you've been given but I think the outcome of where you end up is not just a function of how hard you try and so I think that's that realization uh, I would have never had as fully if my sister were still here. And did that make you change any of your habits, like coming to this realization? And did, did that make you take, make a few adjustments in your own life? I think so. I think, you know, it didn't happen the next morning. I didn't just all of a sudden quit my job or do something extreme. But... I would say in a couple of important ways. Um, I think it's a bit, you know, simplistic, but it's worth saying that like enjoying time with family and friends, I think I do that better 
because I know that they might be gone tomorrow. And I think all of us, you know, this is today is, I guess we're in August, 2020. The world has just, you know, gone through, uh, is going through this incredible pandemic, COVID-19. I think everybody can relate to this. Like if you haven't seen friends for months, the next time you get together with friends, it's really special. And I think, you know, my sister passing away, it's that little voice in the back of my head about how special it is to see friends, uh, even without the pandemic on top. It's, uh, it really has made that, that realization a little bit simpler and more immediate and more frequent for me. So that's one small way. Um, I'd say also one other realization is that my sister was a very socially active, very engaged person with very strong beliefs. I tend to not be as vocal. I tend to be more of an observer and a, somebody who likes to think about things to themselves as opposed to kind of proselytize. And I think I've changed a little bit. I think her passing, I want in her honor to kind of stand up for things that matter and be more active. I'm not, you know, engaging in Facebook battles. Uh, <laughs> that's not, that's not what I mean. I love but, that you're not engaging in Facebook battles. Although, <laughs> I don't think we'd win against you. From time to time, I think that's something that we all should do. Maybe as a goal of like once or twice a year, we actually have a debate on Facebook. I think there's too many bots and too many, you know, too many people whose minds and hearts you'll never change. But I think once or twice but a year I, it might be worth it trying. I have noticed that you've been stepping up a lot more and saying more when, you know, you usually are the guy who isn't. And I know that something's woken up inside you. Can you speak a bit? I mean, if, if you're okay with that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one recent example, you know, is we've, I think we've all seen uh, or participated in the Black Lives Matter uh, discussion about what's going on in the world, in the U.S. in particular. And, you know, I'm from a fairly well-off family, uh, uh, dual culture, um, growing up in France. And so um, I recently watched a video or a talk about the concept of white fragility. And I decided to share that video with all of my, my own family and my wife's family. And it's really interesting how I would say there was not a very warm reception. Uh, I haven't had one-on-one -on -one conversations with all of these, you know, 10 or 12 relatives, but I just, the few conversations I have had have raised a lot of questions of what do you mean? Like, are we racist as whites? And so, you know, I think it hasn't been an easy conversation or a fun one, but I feel good about putting that on the table because I think that, you know, I do think the concept of white privilege is real. I do think that I do agree with the concept of white fragility, this book that uh, I guess Dr. Robin D'Angelo has put out there. Um, and so, you know, I think that was an example of a difficult conversation, which I decided to put on the table in part because I think that, you know, that's something my sister would have believed in and that I believe in and that I'd rather have a few uncomfortable conversations with family members, but encourage them to think in that way as opposed to keeping that for myself. I love how brave you are, Mark, because, you know, that's not easy. Like, especially as you said, you know, with COVID, we're not really seeing family anyway. And it's mm -hmm. hard to, and the whole BLM movement 
happen during that time period, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like to to step up and to do that um, is is important and it's good because I know that you feel very strongly. I can, you know, we can tell from and you think things through, but to actually like use your voice now and speak up. And it's, you know, you're a role model and whether you accept that or not in many ways, because mm-hmm. people kind of look up to you and they kind of see the things you've achieved. And now using your voice to speak out for the number of causes that you're speaking out about. But you're very passionate about energy. I know you're very passionate about nature too, right? Your sister is mm-hmm. very passionate about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Although, to be honest with you, all your titles don't mean anything when you're talking to your relatives. You know, they know you. They they change your diapers. So those fancy <laughs> titles, you know, it's it's that's why, you know, talking to family is both easier and harder. Um, you know, politics is something else. I think politically, my family is is very, you know, is generally of the same view. But even within our family, there's there's a spectrum. And, uh, you know, as, as the U.S. election uh, is on the horizon, you know, I think it's <laughs> it's never easy, even for people who are like minded. So I almost think, you know, saying stuff to people you don't know is easier because they didn't change your diapers. And if you disagree, that's one thing. Whereas, <laughs> you, you know, with family members. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess outside people will tend to look at your diplomas, uh, you know, if they know them. And so I do think that in that case, it does maybe give a, give a bit of weight. Although in the case of Black Lives Matter, you know, what's a diploma from a good university? It's, I think it's more your life path and your life experiences that, that inform you um, rather than studies. All right, Mark, I think this is the time for the question. What is 40 to you then, Mark? Oh, well, uh, to answer your question, Alexia, I thought of a phrase that I think 95% of parents in the Western world will know by heart. And it's a line from Frozen, uh, the movie that (laughs) or hate, and it's let it go. Um, and so for me, that is, that is sums up what turning 40 actually means in that, in the sense that it's, it's actually a much deeper concept, I think, than you might think, especially if you're sick of hearing the song. Um, I think, (laughs) you know, like having kids, (laughs) I, I, I promise I won't. Um, I think that, you know, having kids for me has been the ultimate confirmation or not confirmation, uh, the ultimate demonstration that trying to keep control is is useless, is is counterproductive. And, you know, balancing, you know, being a good husband, being a good father, being a good um, professional, for me, it's, you know, it's impossible to hold these three. And frankly, the, you know, the COVID pandemic, there's been many articles to make it clear that, you know, that's the impossible trinity. Like you simply cannot be a good partner, be a good parent and do, do good work. You, you know, in normal days, it's, it's not possible. In COVID days, it's sort of daily impossible. And so, but, you know, let's just put COVID aside for a second. I turned 40 before the pandemic hit the airwaves. And for me, turning 40 is all about learning to let go, uh, letting it go. And I just want to put that simple, funny, you know, song actually next to a much more profound uh, three words from Mahatma Gandhi. I read that a reporter had asked him to sum up his life philosophy in a few words. Uh, 
and that his answer was simply renounce and enjoy. And for me, those two, you know, sentences, let it go and renounce and enjoy are very much echo each other. You know, renouncing simply, you know, it's, I don't want to dig too much into this, but it's the idea that, you know, you, you, you shouldn't be striving for things uh, for self-interest. You should be selfless. And I really think actually for people in the workplace, that's an interesting philosophy. Are you just trying to prom- get yourself promoted and get all these accolades or are you being a good team player? And so I really think Gandhi's message is perfectly relevant in the workplace. And I hope that, you know, my workplace and other workplaces is able to recognize selflessness because I think that's how the best teams progress. And that's how I think I've tried to be a better coworker by renouncing the sort of self-aggrandizement, which can work in the near term, but I think never works in the long term in terms of true happiness. And then when you do that, whether it's at work or at home, um, then you can truly enjoy. And so I think, I hope that that will, that will be the foundation for, you know, the next 40 um, is, is trying to live according to those words. You know that I'm going to call you when you're 80, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope we'll do you're this. You're going to call from me set. to say, Mark, how have you progressed with those? But I love that. And I think that's totally true. Like even as families, right? Like, families, friendships, like renounce and let go. Like there's no need for us anymore to to try and do the me first. It's just more like let's raise, if the, you raise the bar, I think Michelle Obama said this, right? Like you raise, mm-hmm. you you reach back and you help the next one through and a rising tide like lifts all boats. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So Mark, you have a giveaway for our audience and then where can people find you? So I guess two questions. Where can people find you? Where do you post about um, the things that you're passionate about? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can be very quick about that one. I don't have a blog or, you know, very active Instagram feed. Um, so I think if people, you know, I typically post professional things on LinkedIn and Twitter. So I would recommend people look me up. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and that's the best way to reach me. And we'll link to that in the show notes. So they'll have, you know, they'll know where to find you and your name, your full name and all of that. And then you mm-hmm. have a giveaway. I do. Yep. So my giveaway is a book that I read a couple of years ago, which um, it's a very easy and fun book, but I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, the title of the book is La Parte. And the author is this American cook who lives in Paris, this American chef called David Lebovitz, L-E-B-O-V-I-T-Z, I think is how he That's spells last name. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the book came out in 2017, and it's it's the story of how this American you know guy who's been living in Paris for a long time, for like 10 years, decides it's finally time for him to buy an apartment. And he has to do some remodeling work. And it's an incredible story that really, you know, we talked about being bicultural. It's such a fun story about what it's like for an American to have, you know, to go through the process of buying a house in Paris, which is in some ways so old and so arcane and, and you know, the, the sort of the, the joys, but also the struggles he faces. Um, and he sprinkles in the book a bunch of recipes. Uh, so I've, I found the book super interesting as a French-American and also really fun. And uh, yeah, the recipes are great. The, the French person that I am on the podcast feels like I have to give it my seal of approval. And I do. It was a wonderful book <laughs> and great, great recipes. Thanks. I, I've completely forgotten about the book. So thank you for 
reminding yeah. us of that. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a really good, uh, he, he blogs a lot, so he's a great person to follow on social media. Yeah, actually he had good recipes for cocktails over the summer. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, do, I don't drink much, but I follow that closely. <laughs> not love, Maritz, I, you know, I'm not much of a drinker, but it looks so pretty. So <laughs> he timed the publication of his latest book called, yeah, Drinking French Perfectly. I think it came out just before confinement, and so that was indeed oh, really? a one way for people to uh, get through these, these difficult months. <laughs> I don't even crusty. want to tell you about like the, co- I'm going to call that, you know, the freshman 15, I'm going to call them like the COVID 20. <laughs> <laughs> it literally is like the COVID 20 pounds. Anyway. Yeah. All yeah. right, Mark, we've got to wrap up, but thank you so much. This has been so nice. I feel really honored that you, you know, you opened up and, and as you said, right at the beginning, and I'm going to say this to our listeners, you can shoot me later, is, you know, Mark was saying, like, as a guy, like, being vulnerable about things close to him was always, it was hard, and you did, and, you know, I feel really honored that you shared so much of that with us. Well, my pleasure, and I want to congratulate the two of you for doing this podcast. I think, you know, it sounds like you're touching a lot of people uh, through your interviews and your questions, and, yeah, I think what a wonderful 21st century way to... um, to share some you know important messages so yeah congrats to the two of you for getting doing this it's it's awesome and very honored to be invited hey guys i hope that you enjoyed that conversation with mark as much as murray's and i did you can find mark on linkedin and you can find all the show notes for this episode on our website this is 40 podcast dot com forward slash episode four make sure that you hit subscribe on the platform of your choice and you can follow us on instagram in case you don't know our handle yet it's this is 40 podcast with underscores between every word so it's this underscore is underscore 40 underscore podcast And there you'll get all the latest news on our uh, release. You'll get the latest news about our upcoming guests. Uh, It's also a great way for you to interact with us. You know, it's a place for you to leave your comments, your suggestions for the next guests. Maybe we see them all and it's an incredibly impactful way for you to show your support to our show. And we thank you for that. Another way for you to show your support to our show is to subscribe and also leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. Leave a few stars. Five always looks good, always feels good. So feel free to do that. You know how much we appreciate it. Thank you so much in advance for that. All right. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Stay safe. Bye for now. Bye.